0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to season 10 of Be Heard Talk with Selena Hill, an award-winning talk show that adds a taste of hip-hop, AOC, and spice to unflavored news. Each Sunday, I discuss race, politics, and culture from an unapologetic Black millennial perspective, and I give you the opportunity to be heard. So leave comments on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and LinkedIn, and I will read them throughout this show. Now, I'm super excited to be here with you all this Sunday to discuss the biggest stories of the week from VP Kamala Harris claiming that the country is not racist, to a judge denying the request to release Andrew Brown Jr.'s body cam footage, to Justin Bieber's dreadlocks. Now, later on in the show, we'll unpack President Joe Biden's first 100 days in office and question if he's living up to his promise to be the most progressive president in history and what he's done for black Americans. And we have a very special guest who will be calling in from the People for American Way organization. Now, please support Be Her Talk by buying us a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk. Your support through a small donation will help us to continue to support and amplify the issues and causes that you care about. Now, today I'm joined by Evan Masternardi. He is the co-founder of Let's Not Be Trash and a Bronx organizer from Rank the Vote NYC. How's it going, Evan?
1: What's up, Selena? Always good to be here. Thanks for shouting out Let's Not Be Trash, podcast multidimensional men. Always happy to talk about the world's news with you.
0: I'm happy to have you, Evan. We are also joined by Nkwa Asanye. He is a cultural commentator and a podcast host. How's it going, Nkwa?
2: Thanks for having me, Selena. It's, It's good to be back.
0: Always, always a pleasure to have you back here and be her talk. So I'm actually going to throw it over to Enquah to lead us out on the news roundup. And again, this is where we talk about the biggest stories, the most bizarre stories and the stories that just, you know, almost made us get blocked on Twitter from cursing out a few people. Go ahead, Enquah.
2: And so we'll open with story number one. So Vice President Kamala Harris appeared on Good Morning America after President Joe Biden's first speech before Congress in his term. And she was responding to Republican Senator Tim Scott's assertion that America is not a racist country, but didn't get off to a great start. In fact, it actually seemed like she doubled down. Don't believe me? Take a look at this.
3: What we know from the intelligence community, one of the greatest threats to our national security is domestic terrorism
0: manifested by white supremacists.
2: So Selena, her response actually contradicted Senator Scott's point and will do so a little bit later but do you feel that the vice president's initial response took away from the power of the rest of
0: it? Yeah, because like you said, it was, she completely contradicted herself by saying America is not racist. I I mean, you know, I've interviewed Kamala Harris. I've heard her speak about racism. She's been, you know, very vocal about it. I know that she has a checkered past and some, um, she didn't do things that were always empowering to the black community, especially when she was attorney general in California, but I was hoping that she was since evolved, um, and, and would since, you know, empower, uh, the, the voters, at least that voter in, black people and black voters. So to, 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 hear her, you know, start off saying one, one thing, and then to continue to say something else, that's completely not true. I really don't understand why.
2: Evan, you, are you consider yourself an ally of, of everything that's been going on? I've read some of your work as well. What was your takeaway from what she said?
1: I mean, American politics is inherently contradictory just from the start. It, it's so much about getting one base, being, a, you know, not trying to alienate another base. Of course, what she said made no sense. America is racist if white supremacy is the greatest domestic threat. But, at the same time, she's not going to say that. She's not going to, as part of the current administration, say the country's racist because if she says the country's racist, it it looks bad upon that current administration. It makes the outlook for America look negative. so i didn't I didn't expect her to say that, But it is kind of ridiculous when you see that statement back to back. It's like anyone with any sense would realize, that if that's the current threat, then there currently still must be racism.
2: As we take a look at, you know, later on the show, we will preview Joe Biden's first hundred days, but Selena, there has to be, its it can't be easy being Kamala Harris right now. She's already the first African-American pres- vice president rather holding the position, first woman to hold the position, first Asian American as well. So, she's in a bit of a tricky situation as it is but how much then more do her words carry weight
0: they carry so much weight enqua like again i understand you know like barack obama infam- infamously said i can't be the president it's just of black america but you know only for you know actually for all americans um, and I understand that black people have a, a different bar that is set, you know, we can't just show up and truly be our authentic selves and talk. You know, when we when we talk amongst ourselves, it's very different when we're in front of white folks. Right. We kind of have to put up a facade because they still wield so much power. And, and, and the way that this system is designed, it is oppressive, even to the elected fi- figures in power, because they answer to people and they answer to constituents. Who are racist themselves? I'm talking about the American people. So I understand the nuance and the complexity that people like Kamala Harris are are have to navigate while you know governing and, and working in their role. But sis, you just didn't need to say it. Like I I, I just don't understand why she came and said America is not racist. She that statement was completely untrue, and it did not need to be said. Like if you don't. No one asked, like, do you really think it's racist or not? Like, so I don't understand why she said it.
2: We'll move on to our story number two, because obviously her presence within the administration will also be factoring into our discussion as well. So in the fallout from the fatal shooting of Andrew Brown Jr. in Elizabeth City, North Carolina, Judge Jeffrey Foster has denied numerous media requests to view the police body camera footage. Now, Foster's ruling claims that the body cam footage making available to the public would hamper the state's investigation. However, Pasquotank County Sheriff Tommy Wooten, he appeared on NPR's All Things Considered earlier this week, saying that the State Bureau of Investigation was fine with the video released. He even also added at the end of the day, quote, if any of the deputies made a mistake or if they broke any law or violated any of our policies, they will be held accountable. Now, Evan, you've written about the binary nature of policing in America. Um, So what do you make of all this?
1: Yes, I'm not surprised. I mean, this shows the multi-tiered system of systemic racism that we have here. Even when one system may give a break, another system holds us back. So it's not surprising to me. It also probably will incriminate. And it's interesting in this case that even the police and the Bureau of Investigation there is willing to release this footage. And I think the judge it shows that maybe even the judge is a a sympathizer for police brutality to not want this to look bad upon upon police. It's not surprising to me that anyone in any system would want to uh, prohibit police transparency because once we have more police transparency. There's not going to be bad apple arguments. It's going to be about a rotten tree.
2: Selena?
0: Yeah. You know, first of all, the fact that they're holding this body cam footage for another month or so, it just shows that they, they have something to hide right? We've been fighting so long for police transparency, as uh, Evan has just stated, and to take so many steps back, you know, I'm just so sick of this system. And it feels like the only way to get any semblance of justice is when things start burning down. Because the only thing this country cares about is capital and the dollar. They have proven time and time again, they do not care about black and brown lives. But when we start burning businesses down, then we start to see some justice. And I'm not advocating for violence. I'm just making a statement.
2: And interestingly enough, in Elizabeth City, the mayor herself has called for there to be peace and has also expressed her frustration, not just in the judge's ruling, but in the conduct of the, the department in general. And I'll pitch it to either one of you to respond. It seems that despite the systems being, you know, sort of holding each other up, the actors in the middle of each one are throwing enough kinks to maybe break the whole thing all together. But is that enough?
1: Um, I think that this is why you hear a lot of people saying you must, uh, you know, destroy and I like to say then reassemble for something better the system from the ground up because you know you have a few kinks as you mentioned, which. It's important to recognize because any sort of progress is harm reduction. And I'm certainly about harm reduction, but one kink is stopped by uh, another kink in the way of um, injustice. And, you know, even when the police are willing to comply in some ways, uh, you know, the judiciary is not. And even the fact that as Celine is mentioning, it seems so much more important to preserve property than humanity still has that foundational problem. So I hope on a small scale, this will be enough, but on a larger scale, a lot more work to do.
0: You know, if I may inquire, Ivan E Green via LinkedIn left a really good comment that I did want to just highlight. Ivan says America was built on the premise of white supremacy. America has unfortunately maintained systematic protocols in society and our government. Uh, and then he goes back to Kamala's statement back in the day, uh, the South, however, and I'll just stop there because I do feel like there's an overlapping theme about the systems of white supremacy and systems of oppression, which again is showing up in this case with Andrew, uh, Brown jr.
2: And those systems unfortunately struck in a different way because on Tuesday, Police body cam footage from Alameda, California revealed that officers pinned down 26-year-old Mario Gonzalez to the ground for more than five minutes until he became unresponsive. Now, the incident took place the week before, and Gonzalez later died on April 19th, the day before Derek Chauvin was eventually convicted on the murder of George Floyd. Now, a petition with over, rather, almost 4,500 signatures urges Alameda County District Attorney Nancy O'Malley to charge the officers involved in Mario Gonzalez's death while also noting that she has only done so once during her entire time in office. Now, the national conversation of policing in this country will continue. So, Selena, where where are we now?
0: Square one? (laughs) I mean, we all celebrated the victory of Derek Chauvin being convicted. Um, a small victory, well, a big victory um, of a battle, but we are not done with the war. You know, when we think of Mario Lopez, now I haven't personally been able to watch the video as of yet. Um, but from reports to know that he died in the same manner with, a, you know, with police putting body pressure on his head and his neck. It's just sickening. And it just goes to show that there's a, a, the lack of respect and humanity for black and brown bodies. Um, you know, we talked about last week on Be Her Talk. Not only do we need to, you know, regardless of, you know, reforming police, people are pushing to defund police or abolish police because we see that this system in place now uh, doesn't have accountability. And as a result, police are um, licensed to kill, uh, to terrorize, to over-surveil, um, and to just literally harass black communities, and it's ending with how many unarmed black and brown people losing their lives. It's, we definitely need something different.
2: Evan, your response?
1: I mean, I couldn't watch this whole video. I'm I, I, All I needed to know is that it happened, and I, I I, believe it, and I know it happened. I mean, it's not a matter of... of is this gonna happen again? It's simply a matter of which, which times did we get on tape and which times we didn't. That's it. This is, we're gonna find out if, if, if there's any sort of cam footage that we're gonna find situations like this throughout the country. It's, it's so unfortunate though, that this black pain and trauma is the only way for some people to even believe that this happens, let alone if there's any sort of justice in the courts. So none of this surprised me I'm sure there will be more cases we find out of this happening or different either by suffocation or a different way. The cops have been rolling, rolled up as executioners for a long time. It's just now some people happen to be in the place to get it on camera.
0: So Richard Riley left a comment via LinkedIn saying, where is the justice for black America? He left another comment saying qualified immunity is needed immediately. I think we definitely all agree here, Richard.
2: And we will also see the presence of video in our next news roundup story. See on Wednesday, the U.S. Department of Justice announced that Travis McMichael, Gregory McMichael and William Bryan were charged with hate crimes and attempted kidnapping in the death of Ahmaud Marbury back in February of 2020. In fact, taken directly from the quote delivered by the US Department of Justice, counts one and two of the indictment alleged that the defendants used force and threats of force to intimidate and interfere with Arbery's right to use a public street because of his race. Now, all three men are facing separate charges in state court, which were only brought after public pressure, where guess what? There was indeed another video that was released. And it seems like the ongoing thread, Selena, is that without video, no one's even paying attention. It's almost as if the voices weren't enough.
0: Yeah, it, it is so true that um, because technology um, is here now, all it has done is this allowed us to record and present more evidence to the trauma and the terror that has been happening to both Black and Brown bodies. And I know that, you know, someone has left a comment saying, why do we include Brown people in suffering? I, I do think in cases of police brutality in itself, uh, we just talked about Mario Lopez and there's a number of other uh Uh, Latinx brothers and sisters who are being harassed over surveilled and killed by the hands of white police officers. Not only that, but I mean, if we look up, think about the diaspora of black people, they black people exist in Dominican Republic. There are black people in Puerto Rico as well in Guatemala. So, you know, when white people or white cops pull you over, they're not saying, Hey, where's your family lineage from? They're saying, you know, all they do is see a black face or a brown face and we all live in America, so a lot of us are all mixed in. So that's why, just to clarify, one of the comments we got, we say black and brown in cases like this. Let me just end by saying, anti-black racism is perpetrated in a lot of different areas around the diaspora. Go ahead, Ampo.
2: Evan, your take on this?
1: Yes, Adam Toledo, just a few weeks ago, I mean. As, as you said, Selena, the cops are not going to ask. Um, and I also just want to throw in, we need to repeal and end qualified immunity, not have it. Qualified immunity is what prevents a lot of cops from being sued. We also need for people to understand that our taxpaying dollars is going to all of these settlements. So people talk about, you know, their taxpaying dollars going to bad things. Well, it goes to your cops acting out as they do and being, you know, executioners on the street. Um, yeah, again, none of of this is surprising to me with what happened with Ahmaud Arbery. I think it's good that we have, uh, the indictments on the federal level. Uh, this was a lynching on camera and we've, we, we've seen cops even back to Rodney King that was on camera and we, and we saw all those officers, uh, go scot-free. So It it isn't just the camera. The camera sometimes helps, but it's the idea of, is this type of policing, is this type of violence towards black people tolerable? And I think, unfortunately, a large portion of white America, especially white American power, as I've said, the threshold for a black life is so low to white America, it's simply at, sometimes it's simply at compliance or a criminal record. And if you have any of those things, well, if you die or if you get beat up, that's it it's not the same level of humanity as given to a white person, whether or not it's on camera.
2: As we continue to look at issues like this that have cropped up and unfortunately will crop up. In fact, news right after Derek Chauvin's conviction had already proven that two more had lost their lives at the hands of the state. I'll leave this to either of you to actually answer this question. At what point is it just not enough? Let's face it, the the explanations given were never ever enough for anything that ever happened. But at what point will there actually be nationwide, I guess, uproar almost to the tune of what happened with George Floyd last year?
0: I, you know what? I, I think that when we talked about George Floyd on Be Heard, we talked about the, the, the precedent that was set, right? This man was lynched for nearly 10 minutes on camera. Uh, We were in the middle of the pandemic, so we were all home. Um, and, And as a result, the world rallied around this one black man and called for justice, which led to the conviction of Derek Chauvin. That bar is extremely high, okay? To get folks to pay attention to, again, the trauma, suffering, and oppression of black and brown bodies at the hands of police, um, I, I, look, if people think that this conviction was means that we have, you know, draft repeal or reform or an overhaul, that's not the case. I know that the Senate and Congress is actively trying to push the George Floyd Policing Act, which will bring about some measures of accountability. But if you ask me, we definitely need to defund the police, eventually abolish the police. And I don't know what else it will take for people to wake up to the mass devastation that's going on on a daily basis by hands of police. It's not just one person that needs justice, it's an entire community of people seeking justice.
1: Yeah. Evan,
2: quickly, your response, go ahead.
1: Unfortunately, if it's going to happen, I think I know what could do it, and that's when enough white people are filmed being killed by police. Unfortunately, a lot of people will only start caring when they see that a police force is something that could harm them as well. And it's interesting that a lot of times their comments I see in regard to this is actually, well, white people get killed by police too. And it's like there's a meme out there and it's very true. It's like, and you're okay with that? I think that more white people need to see the police as a threat to them too because they don't see the humanity enough in anyone else that doesn't look like them, which is awful. But the uproar needs to have the white moderates there too. As Dr. King said, the white moderate is really the barrier to justice. And just like Fred Hampton tried to create those rainbow coalitions, I think it's needed. But honestly, it's not incumbent on BIPOC people. We need to wake up as as white people. And I hope it doesn't take police killings from anyone for that to happen.
2: To our final story for the News Roundup. So Dr. Umar Johnson has been somewhat polarizing in the black community. And earlier this week, he made an appearance on nationally syndicated radio show, The Breakfast Club. One of the topics that he chose to cover was interracial marriage. And well, here's what he had to say about it. The reason I'm against interracial marriage, Envy and Charlemagne, is because marriage is an economic contract. It's an economic contract. Most women do not marry down in status. They marry up. And if you don't believe me, show me a rich white woman married to a broke-ass black man. Have you ever seen a rich white woman marry a broke-ass black man? No, you have not, and you never will. Because marriage ain't about love, it's not colorblind, and it is totally economic. So if marriage is an economic unification in a contract, how can we who don't have enough already give so much to the white woman and to white people who have already taken too much when we got all these black women out here who will never get married that seemed to be plain enough <laughs> we don't i know we are only have about two minutes so selena i'm willing to let you go first on this one
0: yeah so while dr umar has proven to say a number has made a number of sexist misogynistic and even homophobic statements in the past what I think the message here, what I took away from was the emphasis on Black family unity and structure, right? What I think he's saying, and I know he uses very crass, very raw and unfiltered type language. But again, what I'm taking away is that we need to make sure that we're solidifying our communities um, by starting in our own homes to make sure we have a strong family unit. Um, so th- that's what I'll, I'll say about that statement.
1: Uh yeah, I, I think there are many overarching points there that are correct, which is that a lot of marriage has become an in- economic institution. I think that this is one of those things where in abstract, in many ways, what he said is factual, but you shouldn't be shamed. I, I like to talk in terms of macro and micro. So like in the macro sense, in many ways, he's right. It is economic you almost never see a white woman marry economically down, especially to a a person of color, to a black man. He's right, that is extremely rare. Uh, But we also shouldn't shame interracial marriages when they do happen because love can still happen. Dr. Umar doesn't know when love can and can't happen. So love can still happen. People can still get married based on love and love can be between people of different races. It doesn't erase the macro sense, but also doesn't erase the micro sense of two people falling in love and getting married, regardless of their background.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you, Evan. I do think the larger point there was the fact that white women have been put on such a pedestal um, in you know in society when it comes to Eurocentric uh, standards of beauty, and when it comes to just you know white women and black women, you know we feel it from every different angle, uh, and sometimes even you know being. Uh, the receivers of black male toxic masculinity. So, you know, it's a lot to unpack and it's a lot to talk about. So we will have to leave it right there. Um, I do just, Tiamari with it left a comment really quickly. She says, Dr. Umar has sh- very strong opinions, but I guess it's how you take it when you break down what he says. Thank you for that, Tiamari. So we are gonna keep things moving right along to some of the stories that really made me ask, Really? this past week. First off, Rudy Giuliani's cell phones and electronic devices were seized last week by federal agents who raided his home and office as part of the investigation into his business dealings in Ukraine. Now, Trump's former personal attorney then went on Fox News' Tucker Carlson tonight to defend himself, claiming that the search warrant to seize his devices was completely illegal because everything was already on the cloud. Let's watch a clip.
2: Hunter Biden's hard drives fall within the scope of the subpoena. The subpoena required them to take all electronics, but they decided to leave that behind. And they also were completely content to rely on my word that these were Hunter Biden's hard drives. I mean, they could have been Donald Trump's. They could have been Vladimir Putin's. They could have been anybody's. But they relied on me, the man who had to be raided in the morning, uh, because I'm going to destroy the evidence. I've known about this for two years, uh, Tucker. I could have destroyed the evidence years ago. I didn't destroy the evidence because the evidence is exculpatory. It proves that the president and I and all of us are innocent. They're the ones who are committing. It's like it's like projection. They're committing the crimes.
0: So you hear his obsession with President Joe Biden's son, Hunter, and the fact that he was just like, why didn't they take that? No, Rudy, (laughs) clearly he's been entangled in Donald Trump scandals uh, since Donald Trump was elected. And, you know, he's getting his due justice, if you ask me. Let's not forget that Giuliani has an inadvertent pertinent for butt-dialing reporters, passing gas in court, and just being a national embarrassment and disgrace. It's about time the feds take him down on that. Another note, another story that really had me asking, really, was Justin Bieber. So apparently Justin Bieber gets his peaches out in Georgia, his weed from California and his dreads from cultural appropriation. The Canadian singer is again in hot water once again after debuting his dreadlocks on Instagram last week. Now, although some of his fans and celebrities are praising Bieber's look, others are calling him out for appropriating a hairstyle deeply rooted in Black history and expression and treating it like a fashion statement. Justin, you can't wear something so historically significant to Black culture and then ignore the struggles behind it. Now, the last time he rocked Locks was back in 2016, and when talking about his his hairstyle, he said, and I quote, being weird is fun. Now, as much as I like Justin Bieber's music, we need to stop here, or else he and the Chet Hanks of the world are going to take white boy summer to a whole new level. To his credit, Justin Bieber, after the murder of George Floyd, announced that he's made an effort to learn, to speak up about racial injustice and systemic oppression. And in addition, he's finally acknowledged how much his career has, and I quote, benefited off of black culture. But Justin, remember, even though some black people like your music and have supported your career, there's a fine line between cultural appreciation and cultural appropriation you're towing the line and don't get cute because your invite to the cookout will be revoked and lastly the last thing that made i think all of us say really is you know you probably heard about the cincinnati bar owner who had a problem with lebron james speaking out against police violence against black people so the bar owner announced that he will no longer show any more nba games until lebron james is expelled, I, I don't I don't even know what he means by expelled, but again, that just speaks to his ignorance. Um, the bar owner also insinuated that black athletes need to shut up and dribble in a Facebook post saying, they need to play the game and that's it. Their opinion doesn't really matter. They're using their position to push their opinions and that's not right. So I know this all made us yawn and say, really? But then LeBron James clapped back with an unexpected response upon hearing about the bar owner's declaration. Debron James tweeted back at him and said, "Aw, damn, I was headed there to watch our game tonight and have a drink. Welp. And there you have it from the story that made me say, really, I'm gonna throw it back over to NQA to make something that doesn't make sense, try to make sense and then we have our featured guest coming on and we'll unpack Biden's first 100 days. Enquah, Enqua is on mute, so we need to unmute him.
2: Let's try that. There again. you go. Sorry about that. So we will take a different route for Make It Make Sense this week and talk about the Republican response to President Biden's first speech in his tenure as U.S. President. So Senator Tim Scott a black man from South Carolina delivered the opposing address, if you will, after President o- President Biden, I can't believe I almost made that slip, after President Biden delivered his speech before houses of Congress. Now, it was a historic night for many different reasons. It was the first time, as we mentioned before, a woman sat at the vice president table. And it was certainly the first time that the Speaker of the House and the vice president were both women behind Joe Biden. An absolutely great historic view. Um, But Tim Scott delivered the opposing, you could say, view to what happened that night. Now, I'm not here to address what he called partisan bickering in his address. I mean, that's what he used most of it to do. I'm actually here to talk about this. A hundred years ago, kids
3: in classrooms were taught the color of their skin was their most important characteristic. And if they looked a certain way, they were inferior. Today, cues are being taught that the color of their skin defines them again. And if they look a certain way, they're an oppressor. From colleges to corporations to our culture, people are making money and gaining power by pretending we haven't made any progress at all, by doubling down on the divisions we've worked so hard to heal. You know this stuff is wrong. Hear me clearly, America is not a racist country. It's backwards to fight discrimination with different types of discrimination. And it's wrong to try to use our painful past to dishonestly shut down debates in the present.
2: That was honestly my reaction when I watched that the first time. Now, let's also be clear about this. He made a very interesting point where he mentioned that other progressives and liberals at times called him an Uncle Tom or called him the N-word. And unfortunately, I'm not here to dispute that because racism doesn't really care what political party that you take part in. But it was very distressing for me to watch a black man who remarked throughout his entire career how at times he was discriminated against, how he was looked down upon, how he himself was pulled over unjustly, to then use his speech to create false equivalencies when it comes to speaking about race in this country. You see, this is not an issue of someone liking pizza or somebody liking bagels. This is an issue of, I think racism is wrong and someone else is saying, I disagree. The latter, I disagree, is not a viable viewpoint. And you are seeing more and more people who are fed up with having to entertain these false equivalencies when they don't regard the same level of truth or authenticity at all. And yet Senator Tim Scott chose to use his platform to make these false equivalencies and continue to perpetuate the fact that somehow opposing anti-black racism is wrong. There are many legislative avenues that have been taken to combat this. There are many judicial avenues being taken to combat this. But if you find yourself in a position of power like Tim Scott and you think that this will somehow bring about healing, it won't. America can never move forward without addressing its past. And to this very day, America refuses to do so make it make sense.
0: Thank you. And I don't think we can make it make sense, but you did a brilliant job at trying and unpacking this, uh, whatever we want to call a disaster called Tim Scott now, without further ado, we're going to move right into Biden's first 100 days in office. Now many progressives and black voters like myself were unenthused when Joe Biden won the democratic presidential nomination. Although we rejoiced at the victory of kicking white nationalist in chief Donald Trump out of office, we knew the next president was an unabashedly moderate Democrat and centrist who would return America to normal levels of racism. Well, it's been more than 100 days since Biden's been president, giving us a preview at what to expect for the next 3.5 years. Since becoming Commander-in-Chief, Biden has signed a $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill into law and distributed 200 million coronavirus shots and vaccines around the country. Unemployment has failed, falling, while schools are reopening for in-person learning and we're returning to a semblance of normal life. Biden has also named the most racially diverse cabinet in U.S. history, disbanded the 1776 commission and taken some steps to address racial economic inequality, including signing executive orders that could potentially increase black home ownership. But although he's taken these steps, let's not forget that Biden promised to be the most progressive president in U.S. history, but at the same time, he has maintained some of the harshest immigration policies that we've seen under Donald Trump, He's opposed the Green New Deal, and he opposes defunding the police. Now, we have a very special guest to join us for this conversation. And although civil rights leader and president of People for the American Way organization, Benjamin Jealous, was supposed to join us, he unfortunately had a family emergency. So instead, we are joined by Diallo Brooks, who is the Senior Director of Outreach and Partner Engagement at People for the American Way. Diallo has two decades of experience as a leader in the fight for social justice and civil rights. Thank you so much, Diallo, for coming in today, especially on such late notice.
4: Oh, thanks for having me. Happy to be here. I'm not Ben, but I'll do my best.
0: (laughs) Oh, no, no. We are sure we're going to have a very robust conversation. So I want to start here, Diallo. You know, I want to ask, has Joe biden met or exceeded the expectations from progressives and the black voters who solidified his victory uh, throughout his first 100 days in office
4: well i mean i think uh, i think there's a mixed bag answer to that question um i'd love to say he's exceeded expectations he's knocked the ball out of the park on everything um i will say this uh there's a stark contrast between him and the previous president Uh, Does he go as far as we want him to go on all the issues that we care about? Uh, He's not there yet. It's still 100 days. It's only 100 days in. Um, Like you mentioned at the top, tackling COVID, moving the vaccinations forward, actually getting the country on the right footing as as we deal with this pandemic uh, is encouraging. Um, Looking at his appointees, uh, particularly to the Justice Department with Vanita Gupta and, and so many others. Um, I think are very, very important. Nominating Black women uh, to, to important positions uh, that are going to make a difference in our government, I think is incredibly important. Um, but as you said, you know, there's still a long, long way to go. There's a lot of threats facing our communities, Black and brown folks, underserved communities, and just everyday working folks uh, put Joe Biden in office. Um, there was a lot of organizing, A lot a lot was happening on the ground uh, going into this previous election cycle, that gave him the victory to uh, to win, and then we need him to to come to the table and make sure that he puts our communities first in some of these conversations going forward. And you know, there's the struggle around uh, uh, police accountability, uh reimagining public safety, particularly for Black folks, um, that we need to see happen, and that needs to move forward uh, as soon as possible.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. I do want to get both Evan and Anqua's voice in here as well. To ask, like, what letter grade uh, would you give the president in the first 100 days in Qua?
2: B. Better than expected, but when the bar is set so low, you don't really have to do much to pass the class.
0: (laughs) Fair enough. Evan, where do you stand? I,
1: I, I'm with Enqua. I'll say a B too. You know, I try to grade or think within the systems that the president is is within, and within the expectations of a centrist Democrat in those systems. So, with those, with that context, I'll say B.
0: So, I do want to delve a little bit more into just police brutality and violence under the Biden administration, we did see a conviction of Derek Chauvin, but we also seen the deaths of Micaiah Bryant, Adam Toledo, Mario Lopez, and so many others that also include Andrew uh, Brown Jr. Um, Diallo, how has Biden dealt with police brutality and violence against Black communities since being elected? And would you give him a stamp of approval?
4: Uh, I think the jury's still out uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, we need to pass the the, justice and, uh, the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. I think that's a low bar. Uh, that's something that just needs to happen as soon as possible. We need the White House to, be, uh, to push on that issue as hard as possible. Um, and we need to see Joe Biden take affirmative steps to make sure that that happens. Um, I think right now, when we look at policing, there's a, there's what the federal government can do, but also really what happens in local jurisdictions really matters because local jurisdictions control uh, all, the, all the local de- police departments around the country, and that's where the rubber hits the road. And so we look at what's happened in Minnesota, you have a, a Black AG that's sitting at the table to help make sure that that system actually works in the George Floyd case. Uh, we don't have that in places all over the country. So elections matter not only for the president, but also for uh, these local jurisdictions around the country, state and local jurisdictions around the country. So there, there needs to be more work. I mean, I think folks uh, have been uh, pushed up against the wall for a very long time uh, around this issue. Uh, we've seen a lot of folks come and go and not really uh, address this issue. I think he's leaned in by you know, weighing in, by calling the Floyd family, um, by being present, and in a way that of course our previous president wasn't going to be but like like we said before that's a low bar we need to continue to have uh, a full core press around around policing in this country because we're losing our lives
0: oh absolutely and, and Diallo, I do want to uh, just ask this too because you are a leader in a large progressive organization do you think progressives? are you know giving joe a pat on the back and and saying like you know good job we'll keep we'll keep you know talking about these issues and, and moving him towards the left or are progressives more to more so like oh this is more of the same and a little disgusted
4: um i think there's a mixed bag even within the progressive space i've been in a lot of meetings with a lot of uh, different progressive organizations and uh folks want to continue to push. And I think it's our our responsibility to push. It's not just to say, okay, we got Joe Biden here uh, to this particular point. We need to make sure that uh, whoever we elect addresses the issues of key uh, concern to us in our communities. And I work for a white progressive organization. We have a Black leader now. Um, And so we've really, really leaned into these issues. Um, And we need to continue to step to the table to push, call on, and have high expectations of what we want folks to do when we do the hard work of getting those folks elected.
0: Oh, you know, I'm glad that you you brought up that point about the expectations, um, because I do feel like many of us, you know, well, there's an argument. Are we putting too much? Are we putting are our expectations too high and too unrealistic? Uh, and Qua, I want to get you to chime in here. Do you think that by calling and pushing Biden to literally defund the police is just unrealistic. And we shouldn't even, you know, be disappointed about something that's not gonna happen in our lifetimes.
2: So I myself have been a part of a lot of different conversations, done a lot of reading myself. And what I've continued to learn is that when you go silent, that is when everything stops. I think that we are sometimes stuck trying to figure out whether or not it makes sense or is most plausible to get results and results never come easy to begin with. So I don't think that it hurts at all to continue to push. In fact, it's better to push than to not say anything, because if you don't say anything and then we get more and more problems and then people go, well, where were you then? It's, it's a mixed bag no matter what you do, so you might as well keep speaking while you can.
0: Evan, I want to get you to chime in here. What are your thoughts on Biden's reaction to police brutality, and do you think he will do enough to stop it?
1: Well, there's a lot of important points brought up here, but first I want to say, uh, to Nkwa's point, this is a bargain. Human rights should never be a bargain, but Thank unfortunately- you. Unfortunately, they are in politics. So you have to start high. Any bargain, you have to start high. So there's no point to meet someone simply at what you think is plausible. It's important to have that idea in your head, but with, like I said, within the constraints of the presidency, but you have to start high. You have to push because the second you're satisfied, they're not going to do more work than you want them to do. You have to push them to do work so i do think that is where we need to start i think i'm talking more about the breathe act than the george floyd act because the george floyd act absolutely needs to pass but the breathe act will go more to what people are saying with defund the police even joe biden can defund the police without saying defund the police i think that's very important also to to do so he can do it he can push forth a vision of a budget that actually does reallocate money away from federal assistance to police and the police military complex. So he can do that. He just may never say defund the police itself.
0: Good point. Thank you for that, Evan. I do also wanna talk about how he's handled uh, COVID. We know that the pandemic has disproportionately affected black communities around the country. Uh, Diallo, how do you think he's handling it?
4: Well, I'll say this. It's, it's night and day uh, what we see around COVID. I mean, I think that's where, you know, he can get m- much higher remarks uh, uh, marks on, on his uh, report card over the first hundred days. I mean, we know where uh, we were with COVID before he got elected. Uh, we know what it looked like in January when he first stepped into office. Um, but it's nice to see adults at the table making uh, decisions about uh, tackling this pandemic. And uh, I think we're, we're, we're headed in the right direction under his leadership uh, with this. Like I said, you know, we were in a very desperate situation. We didn't know what the vaccination situation looked like. We didn't know how communities uh, were gonna handle this. Uh, our communities, black communities were, you know, black and brown communities were disproportionately impacted uh, by COVID. And it is also uh, just paints a picture of the, 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 the neglect of our communities within the healthcare system. And so that bringing those underlying health problems out, uh, I think is very important. What I'd like to see going forward is a continual deep investment in the black and brown communities in ways that help uh, close those gaps uh, around health disparities as well. So as we're dealing with COVID, we're also tackling the problems within the system that have existed for a long time uh, that are the reasons why we were behind um, as it related to COVID.
0: And let's talk more about those disparities, because, you know, to your point, that's what exasperated uh, the pandemic in our communities, that in Donald Trump himself. Inquad, um, what changes or, or did, what do you what do you think needs to be changed so that we can continue to protect uh, black communities in midst of this pandemic?
2: Well, we all know that economics is at the center of pretty much any community. And I think one of the most important things that we can do is to ensure that minority owned businesses are supported throughout this pandemic. Uh, we've seen too many stories about how PPP has been abused, how it's been used for fraud as well. But I do think that there is a real road to recovery that will help, you know, black and brown businesses in, the pandem- in the, during the pandemic in a financial way. And the only reason I'm focusing on that primarily is because we've made noise about everything else involving social justice and things of that nature. let's just make sure that we don't leave the economic part out as well.
0: Absolutely. Um, Evan, what policies and legislation would you like to see president Biden pass during his administration?
1: Well, I'm gonna add on to the business part because something that recently happened in New York and is happening throughout the nation is of course the legalization of marijuana. And I still don't think enough has been done to prioritize the fact that black owned businesses, black owned dispensaries should be way ahead of anyone in that initiative because black people have been disproportionately incarcerated because of that substance. And I still don't think there's a national effort to make sure nobody got a record for simply having marijuana on them. That alone, I think, will not just help economic advancement, and it will help social advancement. It will help families simply get back together. I think that this we need to ride the tails of this movement of marijuana legalization and make it equitable.
0: Absolutely. Thank you for that, Evan. Um, a- another thing. So when it comes to pushing for policies and legislations, y'all, I definitely want to hear what should we be advocating for?
4: Well, th- th- that's a really great question. If you look at what is going to really be the pillars of us moving, moving forward is some democracy reform issues. Uh, we want to diversify uh, the federal bench. So as uh, as Biden is making appointments to those federal bench uh, positions, the federal court, uh, we want to make sure that those, those positions are filled and there's, there's uh, diversity in those positions. And we want to really see uh, the Biden administration and this Congress uh, pass uh, S-1, the For the People Act, which really deals with a lot of voting rights issues Um, deals with money and politics, all the things that are kind of the pillars and fundamental pieces of our democracy that we really need to move forward. And then lastly, we've talked about it um, throughout the show, is also around police reimagining public safety. I don't like to call it police reform. I think it's really time for us to really dig deep uh, and uh, reimagine public safety, getting rid of qualified immunity, uh, making sure that uh, we're moving Uh, budgets away from just hiring police officers to the things that we know that are important in the communities to to drive down crime and violence in in communities. And I think there needs to be a deep dive into those issues. There needs to be a strong push around that. And if we don't have the fundamental pieces of our democracy functioning, it makes it harder to deal with some of these other issues, some of the economic issues, if we're not able to vote. I mean, we see what's happening in Georgia. We need the federal government to step up. Uh, and do what's necessary to make sure that folks have the right to participate in this democracy so we can really push for real change.
0: Absolutely. So Theedris Miller left a comment via LinkedIn saying he gets an A plus for COVID strategy so far. There are still people who have the ability to get the shots, but won't. Yeah, we definitely need to continue to educate the community about getting vaccinated. Uh, I also want to highlight Monique Perry's comment via Facebook. Monique says everyone has benefit in those first 100 days, except for us, so that is a very contrasting viewpoint. Uh, Diallo, do you understand the sentiment on both sides? Some of us are praising him for one thing, but others say, "What have Black people gotten?"
4: Oh yeah, I mean, I I, I totally understand the, the frustration. I've had conversations with my friends. Uh, you know, they know that I do this work, and they're like, "Yo, what's going on? Why is he working on every other group?" I think one of the things that we always lose sometimes in in a lot of these spaces is the intentionality of addressing Black folks directly. Um, there's a lot of like, we're going to put everybody under the same uh, tent, which is fine, but then there's times based on the disparities as we've seen in our communities, um, a necessity to directly drive and directly say that we were going to do some, some, some good work for Black people. Um, and I think, you know, until that happens, we're always going to have this divide. People are going to play in that space because... Yeah they don't see themselves necessarily in a policy yes you know with covid relief uh the packages that have gone out black folks were helped with with that we, we you know it wasn't just white folks it wasn't just other other groups um but at the same time there needs to be a direct conversation a direct out of the lips of the president and this administration to say we are going to directly uh do x Uh, for black communities because we know, as he said, uh, have been behind the eight ball for so long.
0: Yeah, I I 100% agree. And I do think that that's a large part of the criticism we're seeing, especially because uh, President Biden has directly protected Asian-Americans Rightfully so, who were being attacked mm-hmm. during COVID, they have the, you know, the um, anti, uh, well, the, the bill that protects them. Um, we know that he is also actively protect- protecting L- our LGBTQ brothers and sisters. A bill that protects the the transgender community, rightfully so. But I guess you know what what we we were upset about or like it's hard to understand why it's been so hard to just do something directly for black people. And then when we do have, you know, our elected officials that look like us, they say, well, I'm not the president of black America. I can't do something that would only benefit black people. Diallo?
4: Yeah, I mean I like I like like I said, I we you have to drive that conversation. I mean even even in protecting uh LGBTQ uh trans communities you can also, in that narrative, directly say how this uh, the the work that you're doing is affecting the most marginalized of the LGBTQ community, uh, black trans uh, folks. And so, making that as a part, you know, as a key component of the conversation is really important because folks have to see themselves in the change. Because there's a lot of disconnect between the White House and the street, right? And people need to know and need to feel and need to hear that they are being uh, addressed directly. And you know, I think one of the faults that we had during the Obama administration is we were often silent. Um, we elected Obama and we expected Obama to do his thing and we can kind of sit and watch from the background. And I mean, we broadly, not we specifically, but we can't afford to do that with Biden. We have to make sure that he understands and hears on a regular basis that black folks want to see change they want to see and be addressed directly um, and they want to see policies that directly impact our communities. And so, you know, we have to do the hard work of making sure that we are an echo chamber for that, that we're amplifying what we're hearing from our friends and families around these issues. And we have to hold uh, this administration accountable. We're part of why they're here. Um, we want them to do amazing things, but we have to make sure that we uh, give them not only political cover, but we push them.
0: So Catherine. Orho, via Facebook, left a comment saying, I totally agree with this criticism of the Biden administration. We put him in office, so why isn't he out there directly protecting us and giving back to us openly? Definitely agree with that sentiment there. Diallo, we do need to wrap up this conversation. I do want to just give you the last word about what we can do to push Biden to the left, to hold him accountable for the words he said about being a progressive president, and to make sure he's representing the constituents that put him in office, Black voters. Quick, If you can quickly comment Yeah, on.
4: quickly, uh, I would just say this. We have to continue to be an echo chamber for what we want. We can't just criticize. We also have to say what we want. We have to talk about the policies. We want to have voting rights protections. We want to see a reimagining of policing. We want to see the economics uh, reflected in our community. We want to see our healthcare disparities lowered. And we want to hear it from the mouth of this president. And so every day we have to echo that. We have to have the conversations uh, with our friends and our families and neighbors and be very direct about what we want to hear, not just the criticism, but about what we want to see done. And we want have that administration speak to those things directly to us.
0: Thank you so much, Diallo, for joining us. Thank you as well, Evan and Anquad, for having this conversation about Biden's first 100 days. We have three and a half years to go, and let's make sure that we are rallying, we are protesting, we are petitioning, and we are calling our elected officials to make sure that we get what we need done in the next four years on both a federal level and a local level. Now, before we end this show and say goodbye, we're going to end on a positive note uh, by celebrating another game-changing Black woman in a segment we call Black Women Rise. Today, we are honoring Paulana Lamonier. She is a multimedia journalist and the founder of Black People Will Swim, an organization working to smash the stereotype that Black people don't swim. For more than a decade, Paulana has been working with swim clubs, teams, and gyms, sharing her love for swimming and community with her students. And recently, Black Girl Swim won a grant from Adidas. Now, outside of community building and purpose-driven work, Paulana has written for major brands like Fast Company, Forbes, Complex, and she's interviewed the likes of Queen Latifah and Venus Williams. To learn more about Polana and Black People Will Swim, visit blackpeoplewillswim.com. And you should also follow Polana on Twitter because she'll keep you in the know about grants, capital building resources, job postings, and more. Again, congratulations to Polana, who is a pioneer who exemplifies the meaning of community building and leadership. We We see you, sis. Keep shining. Thank you again, everyone, for watching Be Her Talk with Selena Hill. Remember, a small donation on buymeacoffee.com slash Be Her Talk will support us and help us to support the issues and the causes that you care about. I'm signing out now, but I will see you again next Sunday. Take care.